Well, for the next five Sundays, we're going to single out one thing to, that we need to continually be thankful for. Uh, we're going to use as our verse for the month, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 18. The New Living Translation says, Be thankful in all circumstances. For this, say this, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ. People are always wanting to know what the will of God is. Well, Paul tells us what the will of the Lord is. Paul said that God's will for us is to practice thankfulness at all times, in all circumstances, in all situations. That is the will of God for our lives. Well, today we're going to be talking about being thankful for the cross. Thankful for the cross. How many of you are thankful for the cross? I said, how many of you are thankful for the cross? Well, there are three things about the cross that I want to focus on today. The first thing I want to focus on concerning the cross is I want to talk about the man of the cross. The man of the cross. John chapter 19, verse 17 and 18 says, And he, of course speaking about Jesus, And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called Golgotha, where they crucified him, two others with him, one on one side of him, and Jesus, and the other on the other, and Jesus in the center. I want to take just a couple of moments this morning and examine this man. Notice three things about this man. Notice three things about Jesus. First of all, he's the son of God. John 3, 16, the golden text of the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the Son of God. His origin is heaven. He's as much God as as the Heavenly Father is. The Bible says that he was and that he is and that he is to come. He is eternal. He never had a beginning and he never will have an end. He is supernatural. But not only is Jesus the Son of God, but, but he became the Son of Man. Laying aside his royal robe, he clothed himself in a robe of flesh. Jesus, who was 100% God and 100%, uh, who was 100% God, also became 100% man. And Jesus, the Son of Man, lived his life sinless. Sinless. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul writes, and he says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus faced every single temptation that we face. He was tested like no other man, and he made 100 on his test. I said he made a hundred on his test, not one single bobble, not one single slip or misstep. He was 100% pure, 100% holy, 100% sinless. We're talking about the man of the cross. Not only was he the son of God, not only was he sinless, but also he's our substitute. He's our substitute, Romans 5, verse 8 and 9 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still 
sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Well, the Bible teaches us that sin must be punished, and it teaches us that the punishment for sin is death. But instead of punishing us, oh, God chose to punish his son. On the cross, God placed our sin on his son. And on the cross, God punished his son for our sin. And on the cross, Jesus became our substitute. He took our place and he bore our sins and he took our punishment. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, Paul writes and he says, Because of the sin of one man, Adam, death came to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. He goes on to say, because one person disobeyed God, many become or became sinners. But because one other person, Jesus, obeyed God, many will be made righteous. We're talking about the man of the cross right now, Jesus, God's son, Jesus, the sinless one, Jesus, our substitute. He took our place. He paid God's price. He provided salvation for us all. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? Oh, aren't you thankful for Jesus? Aren't you thankful for the cross? Thankful for this undeserved gift. All right, we talked just a little bit about the man of the cross. Now let's take a little look and talk about the misery of the cross. Now the misery of the cross is twofold. First of all, we have the physical torture of the cross. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 7 tells us, he's speaking about Jesus, it says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we need to understand is that the cross wasn't just a means of execution, but it was a means of indescribable misery. The cross was designed to, to be a means of unmatched torture. 
The executioners were trained professionals who, who, who knew how to accelerate excruciating pain and torture on the human body. It wasn't that they were just to, to kill or execute the person, but they were, they were to, to show the most miserable death that is known to man. Years ago, I came across a description of crucifixion written by a medical doctor who describes death by crucifixion. And I just want to read it to you. I don't usually read very much, but I, it, it, I don't want to leave anything out, so I just want to, I want to read what this medical doctor, as he describes crucifixion. He says, what is crucifixion? He says, the cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tight, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. It drops into a hole with a thud. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and, and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he, he places the full weight on the, of his own weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps, comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint rendering or rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest. As the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart, it is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to, ga to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creepily, creeping through its tissues. Finally, he can allow his body to die. We're talking about the misery of the cross. 
The misery that ought to have been our misery to experience. Oh, but because of God's matchless love for us, he chose to allow Jesus to bear this misery for us. Is anyone in this house thankful for the cross today? But the misery of the cross didn't stop with the physical torture of the cross. Oh, no, no, no. And even greater misery, perhaps, was the emotional torture of the cup. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 44. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 44. Speaking of Jesus, it says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, praying, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Before Jesus faced the cross, he first faced the cup. The cup, the cup of Gethsemane. For three long hours in prayer, Jesus contemplated the cup, according to Matthew's account of this event. For three long hours, he he bargained with his heavenly Father, crying out to his heavenly Father for three long hours, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way than this, let this cup pass from me. Notice he didn't say, let the cross, let the cross. No, no, he, he's, he's more concerned about the cup than he even is about the cross. If there's any other way than this, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was saying, Father, Father, I can face the cross, but the cup. How can I face the cup? I can take the beating on the whipping post. I can take the crown of thorns that they put up on my brow and beat down upon my brow with a stick until blood comes down my face. I, I can take the crown of thorns. I can endure the slaps and the spit in my face. I can handle the nails in my hands and the nails in my feet, and I can even I can even stand the spear in my side, but the cup. The cup? How can I endure the cup? Surely there's another way. Surely, surely there's another plan. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Ask her what was so bad about the cup. What was in the cup that made Jesus so adamant against it, so anxious about it, and that just thinking about it made his misery so intense, oh, his agony so excruciating that he absolutely sweat drops of blood? What was in the cup? The answer, sin. It was a cup of sin. But not just sin, every sin. 
Every sin, every sin that man ever had or ever would commit was somehow miraculously gathered up and placed in that cup. And when Jesus looks down on the inside of that cup, he sees all of the sin of all mankind. Your sin was in that cup and my sin was in that cup. Every egregious sin of man, every lie, every perversion, envy, jealousy, pride, adultery, fornication, murder, rape, lust, greed, hatred, name any and name every sin that has ever been or ever will be committed. And you will find that in the cup of Gethsemane and Jesus looks down at the cup and knows that that cup is going to be poured upon him on the cross. And Jesus says, if there's any other way than this, And on the cross, that cup was poured out on Jesus. On Jesus who knew no sin. Jesus who was 100% pure, 100% righteous, 100% sinless. He, He would have the disgusting contents of this cup poured on him. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 and 6, the Lord has laid on him, on who? On Jesus, the iniquity or the sin of us all. And this was just about more than Jesus could endure. Oh, is there any other way? Surely there's some other way. Oh, oh, but aren't you thankful? Oh, we can be eternally thankful that Jesus didn't end his prayer there. Oh, no, he finished his three-hour prayer by saying, but not my will, but your will be done. And thank God his will was done. Is anyone in this house thankful for the cross today? It's more than something you just wear on a chain. All right, we've talked a little bit about the man of the cross, a little bit about the misery of the cross. Let's look at one more thing, and that is the message of the cross. The message of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1 and 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Oh, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, the world thinks that we Christians are absolute fools. To do what we do, to give what we give, to believe what we believe. Foolish, the world says. But oh, to us who are saved... Oh, to all of us who truly believe, to us who love Jesus, there's just no other way. We're focusing on the cross today. What message does the cross send? Well, the cross has two messages. Two messages that the cross sends out. The first message of the cross is this, and that is there's a penalty for sin. There's a penalty for sin. Romans 6 and 23 says the wages of sin is death, or the penalty for sin is death. Hebrews 9 and 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Sin must be penalized, and the penalty for sin is death. Nothing short of death can atone for sin. The message that echoes loud and clear from the cross is there's a penalty for sin. There's a price to be paid. There's a penalty for sin, and the penalty is severe. Yes, the message of the cross cries out, there's a penalty for sin. But another message cries out also from the cross, which comes forth even louder. And that message is, there's a pardon for sin. 
Oh, somebody should be shouting about right now. There's a pardon for sin, yes. Romans 6 and 23 says the wages or the penalty for sin is death. But it goes on to say, but the gift of God, say gift of God. Ah, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I was thinking about this as I was writing the message this week, and I never thought of it like this. You know, I should have because it's very primary it's very simple but i was just blessed with this thought and that is when jesus was hanging on the cross his arms were outstretched and opened wide right i said when jesus was crucified on the cross his 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 arms were stretched out on the cross and his arms were outstretched and opened wide what is the message of the cross? Jesus' outstretched arms on the cross sent two messages. Two messages. Message number one is I surrender. The message I surrender. Oh, I surrender my life so the world can enco- encounter eternal life. Jesus said no man takes my life. I've got the power of life and death. Nobody takes it, but I lay it down of my own accord. So when Jesus is on the cross with his arms outstretched, he is saying, he is saying to the Father, he is saying, I surrender, I surrender, Father. I will be the sacrifice. I surrender, I give my life so the world can have eternal life. Don't you love it? And message number two, my arms are open. To receive anyone (laughs) and everyone. Do you get it? The message of the cross, his arms are outstretched. And he says, "I, I, I accept, I receive, I embrace anyone and everyone. Oh, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. Pastor, you don't know what I've been. You don't know who I am. No, everyone, anyone, all of us. What a message. What a message. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Rembrandt painted a picture of the crucifixion. Three crosses on a hill. Jesus on the middle cross. If you look very, very closely, and most people never, ever see it, but at the very edge of the painting, almost hidden in the shadows, is a figure. Art critics say this is a representation of Rembrandt himself. For he recognized that because of his sin, he too had helped nail Jesus to the cross. And so it is with you, and so it is with me today. Oh, oh, all of us, because of our sins, we were a party to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. The bad news is there's a penalty for sin, and we are all guilty and deserve the penalty, which is death. The good news is there's a pardon. There's a pardon for sin. Jesus took our place on the cross. He took the punishment for our sins, and he offers a free pardon for all. His arms are open wide to all of us today. Takeaway for the message is this, and that is without the cross, we have no hope. With the cross, we have heaven. Are you thankful for the cross? 
Are you thankful for the cross? Father, I thank you that you loved us so much, that you were willing to give your very best that you had in your one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was willing to leave heaven and all that heaven had lay aside his rights and his privileges as God and take upon himself the robe of flesh and live in the flesh of man. And he was willing to offer himself on the cross. And Father, on the cross, you, you poured out my sin and everyone's sin upon your son, Jesus, who was sinless, but you poured that sin out over him. And then you poured out your wrath for our sin on your son. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. We are so thankful today for the cross. So thankful for the cross.